Welcome to The Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And Ian. And we are reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. This is an exciting week. We're on chapter 11, the last chapter of the Ionian mission. Ian, catch us up to date here. Well, Mike, it's all to play for. Last week, we had been with Jack and Stephen as they, with the help of Professor Graham, were kind of doing the tour of the three Turkish bays, all competing for access to the weapons and the support available through Jack and Babington. They had to choose which one of these local bays to support. They had to choose who might work with them to kick the French out of Marga. And right at the end of the chapter, Jack came down decisively in favor of Siahan Bay. And this week, we're going to find out how will Jack's decision to support this guy, Siahan Bay, how will that work out? And Mike, this is great. Not only is it the exciting culmination of all of the story threads that we've had going on in this novel so far, it's really, there's so much going on. It's almost like an entire novel all in one chapter. We've got a setup. We're going to have some plot reversals. We're going to have drama. We're going to have action. All of the big themes that we've had in the novel so far are still alive and active. It's great. I can't wait to get started. Awesome. It really is. This chapter starts off, we've met all these various Christian denominations, Muslim denominations, crosses with ethnicities, and everybody, everybody is praying, especially the Christians. Everybody in Qatali is praying for the wind to turn to the north. They're ready for Jack to send for those transports and bring the cannon. And their fervent prayers are motivated by this dread they have of Ishmael Bey. They have no interest in having him taking over Qatali. And an even greater dread of Mustafa Bey. So they're doing all they can to help Tom Pullings, a person who, by the way, they called the maiden due to his mild face and his gentle manners. We love Tom. And, and <laughs> Yeah, we do. Tom and his crew are building this incredible rope line all the way from the mole on the water up to the citadel to be ready to hoist these cannons straight up this huge incline once the transports arrive. And, and Mike, th this story of the ropeway is fascinating. This, I think, is a Thomas Cochrane exploit in reverse. And of course, Lord Thomas Cochrane is the real frigate captain who lots of Aubrey's seagoing exploits are based on. And in 1808, Cochrane was in command of the frigate HMS Imperieuse, harassing French army positions along the Catalan coast near Barcelona. And the story goes that he, in the opposite of what was happening here, he was harassing the French army. They had this battery high up on a cliff. He used a ropeway to take the cannon off the battery, lowering them down to the British boats so, so he can take them away. And, uh, the episode was actually recorded in the, in the diary of one of his midshipmen, a guy called Frederick Marriott, who went on to write popular naval fiction novels, including a, a famous one called Mr. Midshipman Easy, which is often read, if like me, you've read O'Brien and you've read Forrester, then quite often you reach for Mr. Midshipman Easy as well. And it's a great book. Nice. So the ropeway, not made up, seems to be from real life Cochrane Strikes Again. Well, it's funny. I think it was in 1808 that Cochrane and a different thing was actually 
supplying cannons to another citadel on that coast, on the Catalan coast, trying to hold out as the French were marching through. So fascinating. All these stories we have to pull from here. Um, I think that one was the roses, but I'd have to, I'd have to look it back up. So everybody's praying, 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 you know, morning, noon, night, every hour of the day. And this lack of an immediate answer to prayer, the fact that the wind does not turn to the north, gives Jack some time to write a letter for Babington to carry to the commander-in-chief in Malta when he goes to pick up and convoy the transports back. And the report updates the admiral. It requests Marines for the final assault on Marga. Jack also asks for two sloops for diversionary actions and to cut off reinforcements and supplies that might be coming from Corfu to Marga. And he wants money so that he can enroll troops of Christian Murdites as well as Muslim gigs to help in this attack here. And Jack is hoping that the delay will provide enough time for him and Professor Graham to start acting more civilly towards one another, despite their furious quarrel. And I remember, Ian, I got to this point and I thought, wait a minute. What furious quarrel? I miss this entirely. What quarrel? What what are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, it, it's great, isn't it? And yet again, O'Brien's doing this trick of writing about something and just dropping it in in a matter-of-fact way. And then we find out about it in, in backward-looking terms later on. This is a really big deal. The the two big egos that have been building up in the second half of the book are Jack and Graham. Stephen's kind of been on the sidelines observing, but the people who've been driving themselves, Jack successfully towards being, you know, a more resourceful, more capable captain than he thought he was in the beginning of the book. Graham, with a little bit of rather spiteful ego, I think, trying to big himself up. And these two clash. Graham can't believe that Jack had offered the cannons to Siahan Bay with no negotiation, no concessions, no specific agreements in return. And he says that if the Bay's translator had not been present, Graham would not have translated the agreement. I think, yeah, so he's saying, I would would have stopped it. I would have held it back. He's really upset that, in his opinion, Jack's thrown away the advantages of having all the cannon in his possession. He's worried that Jack has missed out on the nuances and the process of Oriental negotiations. He says, if someone doesn't extract all possible profit from the balance of the forces, it was seen as great proof of weakness, perhaps a hidden weakness. And in addition to gaining guarantees from the Bay, he talks about hostages and other groups on Qatali. Um, Jack, he says, could have negotiated a deal to disarm Mustafa and create a defensive alliance. And I'm like, it, there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, Graham is, let's put it bluntly, he's, he's pissed at Jack right. because Jack cut him out. <laughs> Jack right, exactly. did, the, did the Nelson thing, never mind maneuvers, go straight at them. He saw his opportunity and he went for it, but Graham's not happy. He surely is not. But I think this isn't just about Graham getting up on his high horse. For me as a reader, this is also a moment just to doubt Jack again. A little reversal in this mini novel of the last chapter here chapter 11, we're given a reverse for all of our high expectations of Jack's capability and his competence and his decision-making. You know, it turns out that the expert thinks that Jack has made an elementary mistake. And as I'm reading Graham's account of all the things that Jack could have asked for, I'm thinking, well, yeah, hmm, yeah, actually, maybe we did miss something out here. So we're straight back, I think, to the doubts that were in Jack's heart at the beginning of the first part of the book, he's wondering, has his judgment failed him? Or we're invited to wonder, right. has his judgment failed him? Well, you know, Graham gives him 
a, a way out. He says he can kind of go back to the Bay and to the Bay's advisors and just say that Jack's words about sending for the cannon are what he calls a mere feast-time formula of politeness. And they have to begin the real negotiations. But Jack, you know, Jack comes back and says, no, no, my word is my bond and, and you know, tries to lay down to Graham. It's not Graham's decision that Jack is the captain of the surprise. It's his decision. And O'Brien, I love O'Brien. You, know, you could pick a, any of a thousand sentences in this chapter and they're just wonderful. Here's one. He says, O'Brien writes, that was the last cool remark in the discussion, which presently grew not only warm, but personal. And O'Brien does a brilliant job putting the humor into this, all this uh, mixture of reporters and first-hand speech, and we get the character and the, uh, the the irritation of both of these men as they're wrestling with each other. We hear, Graham wished to hear no more of this parrot cry of responsibility. If an invaluable opportunity was lost the country through forwardness and ignorance, it was of little or no comfort to an injured public to fasten the responsibility upon some particular one of its servants. This is him rejecting Jack's offer to take responsibility on himself. And he goes on to argue that anyone involved in warfare, especially political warfare, must act with the impartiality of a natural philosopher. And I I think Stephen, we believe, is in the room at this point. This sounds like Graham inviting Stephen to weigh in on his side. Right. And Graham goes on and says, with no sentiment or personal preference, they should seek purely objective and impartial opinion. And Graham says, Jack was misguided by his personal likes and dislikes, by personal sentiment and by Jack's uh, favoritism towards the Christian emissary, this Father Andros um, of Siahan Bay. Yeah. I remember Jack saying, you know, well, I'll take your word. You're a man of the cloth. And, you know, Graham just is just abhorrent to Graham there. Right. It's funny. We've seen this black and white nature of Graham before. I remember when, you know, Stephen was talking about the false flag and then then he puts up the real English colors and Graham's going, hey, it's war. You know, you do anything at all. It, you know, you do whatever you want. It's all black and white here. And and it's fascinating, as you say, maybe Graham's inviting Stephen into the discussion. This, this thing, you know, you have to think like a natural philosopher. On the other hand, it's almost like, you know, Graham and Stephen seem to be have reversed here. You know, Stephen, who seems to be an idealist and a real moralist, and Graham, who seems to have no morals whatsoever, or at least is a very utilitarian when it comes to it. Exactly. So in essence, Graham thinks that Jack should have talked to him. We have these jokes earlier on as well about unnatural and immoral philosophers, and it might be interesting to see where where Graham lands between unnatural and immoral. He certainly seems very, very cold, very detached. And he continues, he's resisting authority. And this is an old theme we know between Stephen and Jack. Graham continues, he says, I'm not one of your subordinates. I can't be put to the cruel and bloody lash, which he had seen with bitter regret, so disgracefully used upon this very ship. And even if he was a subordinate, he would still do his duty and protest. It says here, officially with the utmost vehemence against this ill-considered course of action. Graham says he's not a man to be bullied. He doesn't confuse superior force with superior reason. And he goes on on this extended metaphor now about whether this is you know, the, the the sound of a, of a gun and weapons of violence. He says, volume of sound is in no way related to volume of veracity. If Captain Aubrey were to turn his cannon, the Ultima Ratio Regum, and of other bullies on Professor Graham, the truth would remain unaltered. Now, he's, he's using pretty high words there, Mike, and he's dropping in this, this Latin tag. What can we make of that? 
Well, the, the Latin stands for the final argument of kings, which is meant to be a resort to arms. That the final argument of kings is always to go to war. Uh, interestingly, you know, he's he's referring to Jack's cannon that Jack can turn his cannon on him, and Louis Louis the Fourteenth actually had this latin tag engraved on all of his cannons so he's you know, <laughs> brian picks a jewel here we love it it's great it's great and then graham this this argument is still not over not by a long way right. graham who's got hoarse with bellowing into jack's face says uh, he says that he did not suppose that he possessed a monopoly of wisdom that remark he might observe in passing was wholly irrelevant and as illiberal as if Professor Graham had referred to Captain Aubrey's remarkable bulk or his lack of education. But in this particular case, an impartial observer comparing Professor Graham's not inconsiderable knowledge of Turkish history, language, literature, policy, and customs with the encyclopedic ignorance and presumption of those who contradicted him might be tempted to think so. And this is, Mike, this is a really extended roasting <laughs> intellectually of Aubrey, and he's showing, I think, yeah, hubris really out of all proportion here. Yeah, oh yes, oh yes, and it, and I love how he's berating Jack for you know for using a loud voice and trying to bully him. But then we learn that he's screaming so much that he's hoarse, telling Jack not to be loud at him. So his his hubris, his manners, his I mean, my God, I can't believe Jack doesn't just have the guy shot at this point. Oh yeah. And I think that's why Stephen did such a great job in cutting him off. He's thinking, yes. you know, at some point, this is all happening within earshot of the crew. At some point, Jack's going to have no alternative but <laughs> but to feed this guy to the fishes one way or another. So the uh, saved by the drum, the drum beats for Stephen to take Graham off to the gun room. And we all, I think, breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. <sighs> yeah. Well, it's funny. Later, Jack and Stephen are in the cabin together and, and Jack's telling Stephen that, you know, Stephen could have helped him out a little bit. He said, you know, Jack says, you could have flashed out a piece of Latin or Greek when he checked me with my bulk. And and Stephen, I just love Stephen. Well, brother, you had already let fall some remarks about meager, wizened bookworms. And by that time, you were both calling names, which is the end of all discourse. <laughs> Earlier, when you were conversing like Christians rather than roaring like Turks, I did not intervene because I thought there was substance in Graham's contention. Whoa. Ooh, so we, some of Graham's points have, have, have landed. Now, Stephen explains to Jack that he, Jack had wounded Professor Graham by not consulting with him as he should have. Uh, yeah, so Graham's arguments have got some force. Stephen's also concerned about Mustafa, thinking that he might have been brought into an alliance to keep Ismail out of Kutali. And Stephen says, I think that if you had not committed yourself so thoroughly to Siahan, you might have been wise to take this into account. After all, it may be held that in war, there is neither Turk nor Christian nor moral consideration. And Mike, I love this next exchange because it, so far, Stephen has been playing the philosopher and being the reflective one, but we get a great bit of reflection and awareness from Jack. A war like that would not be worth fighting, said Jack. And yet the deer knows war is not a game, said Stephen. No, said Jack. Perhaps I should have said, not worth winning. Wow. We've, we've got this continual people stepping in and out of each other's shoes, and Jack is just for a moment there stepping into the shoes of the moral philosopher. Does he believe that war must then be in pursuit of a cause, which would put him, I think, on Stephen's side of some of these arguments? Or is he just saying that war isn't worth it if there's no honor in its conduct? Either way, he's, he's asking himself the question here. 
Yeah, it's a really great one. I, I This is one of those ones that really made me pause. And, and I still don't quite know what to make of it, but I, I loved it because it's, you know, we're not just dashing along in an action adventure. It really does make you think here. Well, anyway, the wind finally turns north. The prayers are answered and the transport dryad sails for Kefalonia and Malta. So the bay stops all the shipping so that the news won't reach Marga. So he's embargoed the harbor so that the French hopefully stay ignorant of the fact that the transports have sailed. They're still busy with the rope bridge. They're hoping to finish it before the transports and the cannon return. And they're hoping, they're expecting that this will be in four to five days. But perhaps because the prayers for a north wind have been so fervent, the wind doesn't let up and it's taking some time and it's dragging out and the transports are still not here. And meanwhile, Jack works on the ropeway and he goes off wolf hunting with Siahan Bay. He takes the sickly midshipman Williamson with him. And Mike, there's, there's a really, it, first of all, scary, but ultimately funny episode as Jack heads off into the forest with Williamson in tow on a horse. Unfortunately, Jack's horse which, you know, O'Brien tells us and, and that the Bay tells Jack is of the famous epirotic breed, could not carry his weight. Jack's just way too heavy for this horse. And so I'm, I'm trying to find out about this breed and I'm looking it up and I find out that Epirus is one of 13 of, of the regions of Greece. It's right here where we are. It's in the northwest corner, you know, borders on the Ionian Sea. And that there have been a number of, of references that say the horses from Epirus were considered among the best in the Mediterranean region since antiquity. But I still haven't gotten kind of a read on it. My suspicion from what I have seen is that it's a smaller draft horse. And Jack Jack okay. would do well with a with a full-size draft horse for sure. <laughs> and be, because he's so big and, and the horse is not really built for that, you know, they've been hunting all day, hunting all day, the, they've kind of chased this wolf into this dank forest, so it's, it's swampy and boggy. And and uh, Jack's horse finally just says, "No, no, I'm I'm not going any further here," and stops. And the bay and his whole hunting party and Williamson and the bay's nephews have all gone on ahead, and Jack's there alone with his horse. And to Jack's credit, he gets off. You know, God bless him. He doesn't spur him, and he you know he just gets off. He dismounts. And, and the horse, O'Brien tells us, is very relieved. And Jack is going to walk him home. So my heart goes out to Jack here. But it's getting darker and darker. And, and Jack seems to be just kind of walking around in circles. And, and O'Brien writes that the horse looks at Jack with his lustrous and intelligent eyes in, in a way seems to be expressing doubt that <laughs> they know where they're headed. And, and what, just when this happens, they hear these two wolves calling out ahead. And the horse is like revived and Jack is revived and, and, and the horse is ready to go, ready to go. And Jack kind of finally backs him into a tree. So he holds still long enough for Jack to jump on his back and they take off boom racing. And then th- immediately they found their way out of the woods. But as they're coming out of the woods towards this dell, they hear these wolves calling to each other right in front of them. And then right on top of that, they hear Captain Aubrey, ahoy. And there's Williamson 
and one of the Bay's younger nephews. And they explained to him that the nephew is does these great wolf calls. So they've been doing wolf calls back and forth to each other. And then the wolves somewhere far away have been answering. So it appears that Jack and his horse are saved from being lost in the woods by these two young boys doing wolf calls with one another here. <laughs> oh, it's, it's great, isn't it? There's a nice little confluence there of some O'Brien themes we've got relationships with animals and being unknowingly looked after by children. It's, it's lovely. Right. Too true here. And, and I wonder if we've got yet another kind of O'Brien rhinoceros praying mantis story here about sort of what's the metaphor of being lost in a, in a woods with a horse that won't carry your weight and being saved by children <laughs> pretending to be wolves. I don't know here. Maybe, maybe Brian will help us figure this one out again. Yeah. And I think it certainly brings us back to all the doubt that Jack has had about his own character, you know, all the the dwindling horsepower metaphors that we had earlier on. Right. I think that's that's brought back to the front of our mind. Yeah. There's another connection with animals, um, which is on Stephen's side. He's been treated to the delight of seeing his first spotted eagles, thanks to a family of shepherds who are falcon trainers. Father Andros has introduced them to Stephen in his quest for this spotted eagle, and he says he rode 17 miles into the mountains, and he came back successful. He'd seen a spotted eagle. And Professor Graham, meanwhile, has been meeting with all the different Christian leaders, with the Bay's Turkish advisors. He's been meeting with traveling government officials and his old friends from Constantinople. And he learns of Ismail's relations with the French. He learns of the history of Mustafa's friendship and quarrel and reconciliation with Ali Pasha, who's someone that Graham had called an old friend. And I think we were hearing about Ali Pasha as a sort of playmaker, sort of connected guy in Eastern Mediterranean right back at the beginning of the book. Right, right. And Graham told all this to Stephen in the hope that Stephen could talk Jack around, could get some fresh conversation going to renew and readjust this deal with Siahan. But right now, Graham's not getting through. Jack's not listening to Graham at all. Right. It's interesting because we've, we've got this stuff going on, but really there's not a lot going on. There are little tales. And finally, the storms die down, but the wind still is strong enough to prevent the return of the transport. They've completed the ropeway. They test it. They run one 32-pounder carronade up and down. It all works. Uh, they've had spies go into Marga. They say there's no notion of an attack there. And, and it appears there's just nothing to do but wait. And it kind of, in, in a way, reminds me a little bit of, you know, we're, we're at sea and like, you know, we're doing all the routine stuff, waiting, waiting, waiting. And, and Jack's worried. Jack's thinking that, you know, the longer we wait, we've got all these ships, you know, kind of in bargoing Marga's harbor and, and being detained at Catali. And eventually they're going to lose the advantage or surprise. He says that rumors seem to fly on the wind here, and he does not want the rumor of the attack getting there. And he and Stephen are playing music and, and Graham comes aboard and they hear him coming aboard and addressing the sentry real late at night. And he reports in that there's a big rumor now sweeping all around in the Turkish camp. There was a courier who was on his way to, to report to Ali Pasha, who said that Ishmael has been appointed the new governor of Kutali, that the sultan has signed in day, and that the document is now on its way. And Jack, you know, Jack is really taken aback, thinking he's, you know, he's been behind the wrong man. Graham saying that, you know, it's really surprising that a decision would be made this quickly, but 
if it's true, then that's the end of the attack on Marga, since he's got proof that Ishmael is aligned with the French. So Jack asks Graham's advice, you know, and here Graham say, wait, you're asking for my advice? And he's saying, yes, yes, I am. And Graham says, look, I need to go talk with Sirhan Bey first thing in the morning. And luckily he gets up early in the morning. So saying, you know, let me check with him and figure out the next course of action. Yeah, and poor old Jack's had to eat a generously sized slice of humble pie. Oh. And and he's done it with good grace. And he does seem to have done the right thing because he's got Graham at least on the inside of the tent for now. And he spends the night walking the deck, going back over this, second guessing himself. It says, as he paced up and down, irritating the harbour watch and absolutely terrifying Moat as he crept back from a venereal assignation. And as he paced, so some critic in his mind kept up a very unprofitable nagging about what he ought to have done, outlining various courses that would infallibly have led to success. And we've got the, the old self-doubt from the beginning of the book creeping back in here. He's thinking, perhaps I should have sent for the transports immediately with Mustafa. I could have taken Kutali and be battering Marga together. But then he thinks, you know, Kutali would have to be defeated street by street. And it's not written, but I'm sure he's thinking, you know, I would have had to make an enemy of Father Andros and the Christians. And he didn't like the idea of that. Right. He certainly didn't trust Mustafa's intentions towards Marga. And he goes below and Mike, we've had this many times so far in his book. The dialogue continues in a way in his letter to Sophie. He says he knows Hart will throw him to the side and he feels that um, he won't be able to justify his decision if all of this goes wrong. This and Medina will put him in a very bad place with the Admiralty. He most regrets that he won't be able to do anything for poor old Tom Pullings because Pullings is getting too old to get a command. Um, unless he can get a step through some kind of success, some kind of action. He says, on balance, he's happy that he had no hand in what Mustafa's men might have done or might be about to do to the people of Qatali, but he worries about, stick a pin in this one, Mike, he worries about the unholy alliance between Hart and Ray. Yeah, that was, boy, that really did kind of chill my blood just a little yeah. bit, this unholy alliance between Hart and Ray. You know, I'd really forgotten about that, that, you know, Hart's daughter might be marrying Andrew Ray, Ray, who's got it in so much for Jack on the Admiralty board. Wow, I really want to know more about that. Well, at eight bells, Killick comes in, and and I love this. You know, it says that Killick is clean and benevolent since it was evident that Jack was low in his spirit. For Killick was not unlike a partner on a seesaw, often being at his most shrewish when Jack's cheerfulness was at its height and the other way about. So because Jack is down, Killick is up, you know, he's kind of giving him a little buoyancy, a little, you know, counterbalance there a little lift and he reports that graham left at dawn and jack is waiting for his return he's eating breakfast with steven he's noticing that the glass is beginning to fall so the weather's changing here and maybe the transports can come up now and poolings runs in to report that the town is in an absolute uproar they've heard that ishmael is going to be a new governor and they're sending a party of christian groups and former senators to seek jack's protection and my, th this is really upsetting to read. In, in a way, I think we're getting a commentary on what it's like to be a, you know, a, a, a NATO peacekeeper 
trying to keep two warring factions apart. In the end, you end up being the symbol of the division for the for the Christians there, and you have this really horrible moral dilemma. Jack really hates this situation that he's in where the civilians of the town are pleading with him. And Jack says he can only answer to his master. He says his mastership, um, and they're begging for cannon. He says they, they're willing to clear away the town. They'll help with the ropeway. If they can get cannon from the upper deck of the surprise, then they can replenish those cannon when the transports finally get there. They talk about how Siahan Bay has honored the Christian protection, and they tell Jack the horrifying things that will happen if Ishmael comes unchecked. And O'Brien writes, it was extremely painful. It was as painful as anything Jack had ever known to have elderly, dignified men kneeling to him there in the great cabin. Ouch. And Jack has to ask for them. He says, he says, wait for the rumor. Let's get the rumor confirmed before taking any action. He doesn't want to give the Turks cause for resentment. And he has to do this really sort of scrub-like thing of warping the ship off. When they've left the ship, he has the ship warped a cable's length into the channel because he sees that the women of the town have come to plead with him and he doesn't want to be in a position of of being, being begged to by the women as well as the men. Right. And it says, The hands who carried out the kedge and cast off their moorings knew very well what they were about, and they and their officers and their captain looked mean, hangdog, and ashamed as the frigate, that powerful battery of guns, edged away from the silent, crowded wharf. This town that has been so welcoming, so accommodating, is watching what they think is, you know, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. And <laughs> you are <laughs> backing away, Obi-Wan. We don't like this. Yeah. Well, Graham comes back and he reports that it's not quite what it sounded like, that it, it's not an era day. It's instead a minor document, kind of a preliminary appointment that is often sent out just to kind of see how these things are received, kind of like floating a little rumor before an announcement's made here. And it has been made out in Ishmael's favor, but it has not been sent out and no era day has been signed. So Graham proposes writing to Constantinople to put their case before the, the embassy and to show them proof of Ishmael's connection with the French. And he, he's, he's quite certain that once the, the British embassy sees this, they will protest to the Sultan. And he tells Jack that uh, Sian Bey and the Kataliots have all given him drafts, major money drafts. He says this should be enough to ensure the appointment of, of Sian Bey uh, rather than Ishmael. And that once this kind of preliminary announcement is removed, he thinks that then Skanbe will will move against Margaret with Jack, but he's kind of he's got a little bit of almost a superstitious thing. He doesn't want to do anything while this preliminary announcement is out there. Now, mm. Jack thinking, wait a minute, that's a long ride to Constantinople, and we know you've got this horse guard that the Christians have provided for you, but you know maybe you should take one of these ships here. We've got these small local ships and. And Jack knows that they, they're, they're really good, can really make great time. And I love Graham's line here to all us seafaring lovers. Graham says, the sea is an uncertain, chancy, whimsical female lunar element. You advance one mile upon its surface, and at the same time, the whole body of water has retreated a league. I prefer the honest earth where my advance is absolute, however arduous, and I'm no more a seaman than is a Turk or a tip cat. Now, gentlemen, 
Have you any commands for Constantinople? If not, I must beg to take my leave. And I, I wish I could do this in Patrick Tall's Scottish accent because it's a fabulous <laughs> little soliloquy there. And a tib cat, by the way, is a female cat. And I don't know about female or male, but I know neither one of mine are, are much for the sea or a bath. No, no indeed. So off he goes. And Stephen accompanies Graham to the shore. The horses and the guards are waiting there. Graham says he'll stop by Yanina, where Ali Pasha and his advisors will tell him how things are standing at the palace. And Graham explains that he, Graham, had done a kindness for Ali Pasha once in the past, and though um, Pasha is a man of blood, he's still grateful. However, Graham won't accept the additional horse guards from Ali, since it's known that if Ali could get rid of Mustafa and his navy, he would be in open rebellion against the Sultan, trying to set up his own independent kingdom. So Graham's saying he wants to play the military presence very, very low key. And he's also maybe showing a bit of personal bravery here, saying, I'll just go myself. I won't accept any protection. Yeah, or certainly no additional protection from Ali Pasha. He's going to take his protections from the Christians on Qatali. <laughs> and and, right, and I guess right, right, right. maybe the gags too, I guess. And I guess there were Muslim and Christian gags. So you know, you've got the ethnicities and the faiths groups all merged here. Yeah. Right. Jack wants to put to sea now. He's already warped the ship off into the harbor. He would like to raise the anchor and head off until Graham returns. He wants to gather the transports and go on a bit of a Cochrane-esque mission to harass the enemy in Paxo and Corfu. He's concerned about the effects of staying too long ashore or too long near such a welcoming port, the effect that it's going to have on the ship's discipline and the ship's health. And this is Jack, who was almost in flagrante with Mercedes a few chapters ago, paying attention to the cruise. <laughs> right. <laughs> moral welfare, so well done, Jack. Um, he doesn't want to worry the French naval commander in Marga by staying too long, but my, he's got this conflicting desire. He doesn't want to leave without gathering some of his cables from the ropeway. There's a lot of um, anchoring and mooring to be done <laughs> safely right. with the cables that he's currently got strung up across the town. He asks Pullings' opinion on taking some cables and leaving now. I think there would be a riot, sir, said Pullings. They would be sure we were deserting them. I know if I touched so much as a limoline, Annie would have a fit of the mother. Who is Annie? asked Jack. Oh, sir, cried Pullings, blushing crimson. She's only a young person where I go to have a cup of coffee, sometimes a very small cup of coffee, and to learn a little of the language, the customs of the country. <laughs> so this is Pullings that they all like. They call him the maiden because of his mild manner and his pale complexion. Uh, but this is another example, Mike, I think in this chapter of the character's wearing someone else's clothes. And I think in this case, Pullings is wearing the breeches of Babington. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They're trying to decide what, what would happen if we pull out right away. And so Stephen checks in with Father Andros. And, and the father surprisingly tells Stephen, well, he could put it in hand with a rumor. He says, with word of mouth properly employed. And he, and he would have done so earlier if Stephen had asked him. So mm -hmm. Father Andrew says, you know, why don't you give it a couple days? You know, I will calm the people down, let them know you're not leaving for good. We're in, in a better position than they think. And so they're waiting. And, and Friday night, they're, they're there. They're planning to collect their cables in the morning and depart. And they're, they're uh, O'Brien writes, sawing away fortissimo, building up to the climax of their Corelli in C major, 
when the door burst open and Graham appeared in the opening. Graham cries, Mustafa is at sea. He has taken the transports and you can catch him if you are quick. And Jack, you know, immediately goes nautical. Where away, asks Jack. (laughs) Graham apprised. He's taking them into Antipaxo. And from there, he goes straight on to meet Ali Pasha at Mankini, sailing at dawn. So I think if you've got that sound effect, Ian, it's time to employ it again. (laughs) So... The reversal of the reversal. Oh my gosh, Mike, how much more exciting can this get? Um, I think with all the excitement, I think I might need a break. How about you? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So we're going to take a break to recover our composure. We'll be right back in a few moments. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lover's hole, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash lover's hole. Help us defray some of the expenses of making the lover's hole and join us for some additional content. So welcome back, and we are at the height of the tension here in the last chapter of the Ionian mission. We've just heard that Jack had not backed the wrong Turk after all. Mustafa is at sea. He's taken the transports. Jack springs into action. He goes up on deck. He almost cuts the cable, having been cautious earlier on about preserving cable. He's now willing to cut the cable, but he remembers that he's a little short on rope, so he gives the order to weigh anchor. Graham, asking for an egg and some cocoa, debriefs them about everything that he's discovered in his visit to Yanina. Graham's hands are trembling so badly, we learned, that he sets his cocoa on the music stand that Diana gave to Stephen. He sips the cocoa, tells them that Mustafa has decoyed the transports. He's treating them well, so they're intact and Babington is fitting well. He's hoping to make an arrangement. He's sailing in the Torgood at dawn to meet Ali Pasha in the evening. So Jack excuses himself and plots a course to intercept. When Jack comes back down, Graham tells him that Ali Pasha actually made up the entire rumor about Ishmael, and it was done to get Mustafa to rebel against the Sultan. Um, This had deceived everyone, Graham said, including himself. Uh, A confidant of Ali's persuaded Mustafa to turn on the Sultan, capture the transports, and join forces with Ali to defeat Ishmael and then divide control of the Western region. Now, we know all along that Ali had wanted to rebel against the Sultan, but Mustafa and his navy were the only things standing in his way. And this way, Ali gets to clear the field for the future, and he plans to send Mustafa's head to the Sultan once Mustafa arrives. He's actually hoping that Jack will take care of Mustafa for him. And this will leave Ali in great graces with the Sultan and clear to rebel anytime he wants to in the future. Graham tells him that Ali's counselors have given him all these all this detailed information about what happened because they're delighted to have Jack go after Mustafa. Jack says that it's hardly believable, and Graham replies just, no, no, 
O'Brien writes in this vague, unmeaning voice and begs to be excused because he can say no more. So I think it's not at all unbelievable to Graham. He realizes that he's been played and how wrong he was. Yeah. So the, the fatigue of the ride is one burden on him, but the, really the, the the burden of knowing that he was wrong. Oh, to, to somebody who held his intellectual ego quite as high, that's a bit of a blow. But let's not waste too much time feeling sorry for Graham. I'd like to f- spend some time feeling happy for Jack, right? Jack's been vindicated. He had read the situation well. You know, his, his intuition, his kind of cut through intuition had served him well. Um, he had picked the best and the most honest man, Siahan Bey. Um, Graham, with all his knowledge, all his self-confidence, had actually been deceived and might well have been flattered into the deception because of Graham's past interaction with Ali Pasha. And maybe they're all the learned folks that we know in our lives who aren't quite in touch with the real world sometimes. Maybe we're seeing a bit of them in Graham's character. He's willing to let his emotions and let his ego get in the way of decision-making. And Mike, this is great, isn't it? The way this character of Professor Graham has been constructed. Absolutely. You know, and, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering, you know, because we've seen Jack and and Stephen, while while remaining true to who they've always been, kind of develop all along the books. And I'm wondering, you know, what happens with Graham now? Now, now that Graham's been humbled, does he change character? I'm, I'm fascinated to watch him. Well, let's see how he responds in battle, because battle's coming for sure. Jack wakes up to the sounds of holy stones on deck, and the ship is being put in shape for battle. He had been on deck, it says, twice during the graveyard watch, but since then he had had some hours of sleep, deep, velvet sleep, and he felt perfectly rested, actively and positively well. And Mike, that's a big contrast yes. from the cold-suffering, insomniac, um, anxiety-ridden Jack of the first few chapters. It says, the tension of that interminable waiting for the transports was gone, and with it his uncertainty and his immediate distress about Kutali and all the falsity and double-dealing on shore his present course of action was clear-cut and perfectly direct at last, an operation that he was fully qualified to undertake by training, inclination, and the splendid instrument at his disposal. Um, nice choice of metaphor there, describing yes. yeah, describing the surprise as an instrument, musical instrument, and maybe surgical instrument. Right. So we've got Jack back. Yeah, I think it feels to me like Mustafa has actually helped the situation by taking the transports, turning this into a sea battle rather than a siege of a coastal town. He's made this a battle that Jack can not only step into with the hopes of winning, but can actually relish. Right. I mean, you know, when we heard when we were chasing the French, how this sets you up, nothing sets you up like this. And I think this has, oh my God, the promise of setting Jack up. Yeah. He had gone to bed last night, you know, before this velvet sleep, thinking about his adversary, the ship, the crew, and everything. And now he continues that thought. He's wondering, how's her gunnery? What about those great big 36 pounders? How many crew does she have? And despite all the odds against him, as he's kind of thinking about this in his mind, we read, he was on the point of exclaiming, Thank God, Dryad ain't here. For even an unhandy butter box of her size would upset the fairly even match and take all the glory away when he realized that nothing could be more presumptuous or unlucky. And choking back even the enunciation of the thought, he sprang out of his cot singing, The lily, the lily, a rose I lay, the bailey beareth the bell away in his powerful, melodious bass. 
So yeah. the lily, the rose, I like. Do we know anything about this 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 song? What where does it come from? What might it mean for us? Well, it's fascinating. You know, I'm, I'm, I was so taken back by this whole, you know, luck, unluck, superstition, stuff like that. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, what are these words? And sure enough, uh, this is, it, it's, uh, we don't know who wrote it. It's anonymous. Some people refer to it as the bridal morn. Others call it the maiden came. And, and there's something going on here. Again, we're not quite sure when we read the entire poem. Um, it appears that there's this maiden. She's going to be married. Uh, the the bailey, not bailiff as we might think of it, but probably a town official bearing the bell, probably the prize, meaning prize back then away so that, you know, she, this maiden is going to be born away by, you know, this town official to be married and her maidens are joining her. But uh, there are different interpretations on this. So uh, I don't know. O- on the one hand, you know, Jack may be a maiden with his uh, his kind of uh, maidenhood, if you will, restored in this turnaround here. He's being, you know, going off to carry the prize away. I don't know. Uh, I was fascinated, though, Ian, as I was researching this. Uh, Allen Ginsberg, a great voice of mine mm. from the 60s, had given a lecture on this, and he referred to T.S. Eliot paraphrasing this line in his poem, The Wasteland. But for the life of me, I, I combed through The Wasteland and I couldn't find it. But but uh, Ginsburg does point us to a, a YouTube link. I've, I Ginsburg doesn't, but the person writing about Ginsburg's lecture does that we could put up in social media here. Yeah. But what I really wanted, and I have not been able to find, is a deep, melodious voice singing this poem here. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Well, let's hang on to the idea of deep, melodious voices because we might come back to the singing topic in, a, in an episode very soon. Let's think, really? think what we can do with that. Anyway, meanwhile, with all the singing going on, every, up on deck, everyone's in good spirits. We're going through one of these uh, great O'Brien you know, epithet moments of getting the ship ready for action. The descriptions are lovely. They've got the crew cleaning the ship. It's funny, isn't it? They're going into action. They want the ship to be spotlessly clean. Pullings has even got his own special blackening solution. Jack, despite the best efforts of Killick, is in his very best uniform. The crew are trying to get the shot, the round shot, as round as possible. The Marines are polishing their muskets and bayonets. We've got this great honor, I think, associated in people's minds with the idea of going into action. It's very reminiscent of athletes and sports teams, superstition, you know, wearing my lucky jock strap and all that kind of thing. And the individual and collective rituals that go into that. And one of the rituals, of course, is eating. And Jack is in good shape. He invites Stephen and Graham and Pullings and, of course, two youngsters, Callum and Williamson, to breakfast. We know that Jack is in good shape because not only is he inviting his uh, his guests to the table, but he's got a generous appetite and he gives orders as he's eating to the gunner and the carpenter covering all the contingencies that might arise. And he has fun telling the midshipmen that the countryside they're passing was a mere continuation of Dalmatia. Dalmatia is in modern day Croatia. But he picks up on the idea of Dalmatia and Dalmatians. He says, so it's famous for its spotted dogs. He himself had seen quantities of spotted dogs, had even hunted behind a couple of braces. Spotted dogs in a pack of hounds, oh Lord. While the town of Kutali was positively infested with spotted youths and maidens, and now the doctor swore he had seen spotted eagles. Jack laughed until the tears came into his eyes. 
in a Dalmatian inn, he said, by way of pudding, you could call for spotted dick, give pieces of it to a spotted dog, and throw the remains to the spotted eagles. And Jack is rolling high on the glory of his own wit here. But not everybody gets it. Graham says to Stephen in a low voice, what is this spotted eagle? Is it a joke? Stephen replies, the Aquila Maculosa, or discolor of some authors, Linnaeus's Aquila Clanga. The captain is pleased to be arch. He is frequently arch of a morning. <laughs> and I, I, I love Stephen's very dry put down. I love the use of the word arch, which I think, Mike, is a fairly early, early 19th century engram hit for us, if you're following the engram reader on Google. And the Oxford Dictionary of English says it comes from mid-17th century, uh, a combination of the idea of arch meaning a rogue or arch scoundrel. And that's Jack amusing himself. We love the reference to spotted youths and spotted maidens as well. And perhaps he's worried about the uh, the effect on people like pullings of consorting with the maidens. Right, right. Well, in, in the midst of all this revelry, sails are sighted. Pullings is half out of his chair before he, he asks Jack's permission to go on deck and be excused. And Jack, you could tell Jack is in such a good mood, but he says, by all means, you know, go ahead. We'll be gladly eat your bacon for you. And on deck, they see not just the tour good, but the tour good and the katabi. So it's clear that Mustafa had left earlier than uh, Graham's intelligence had said. And instead of coming in one ship, as Graham's intelligence had said, there were two ships. And this has just got Graham upset. He says, oh, what a damnable thing, cried Graham. And it, it, he says, what a bitter, bitter disappointment. And he says that he's sure he had gotten the best intelligence, but he's wringing his hands. And Jack tells him, you know, never be so concerned, sir. It will be somewhat harder to be sure, but we must not despair of the Republic. And Graham, you know, back to Graham, the, you know, the black and white guy said, you cannot possibly attack both of them, said Graham angrily. The Torgood carries 32 guns in all and nearly 400 men, and the Katabi 20 guns and 180. You are outnumbered by more than 180. There is no shame in retiring before such odds. And boy, to have Graham on the deck of the quarterdeck of the ship with the captain, you know, reading him the riot act. And, and it says, as he said this, some of the people on the quarterdeck nodded. Others adopt reserved remote expressions. Only Pullings and Mowat frowned with evident disapproval. And, and O'Brien tells us that while Stephen thought actually his remarks made sense, he, he certainly isn't going to form a naval opinion. You know, he knows that Jack wants to get back from Medina here. And he, and he thought, you know, that might warp his judgment a little bit. But I love it. Jack says, why, Professor, said Jack pleasantly. I believe you are almost in danger of poaching upon my province. And Graham, recollecting himself, begged pardon and withdrew. Ha! <laughs> Which is Jack. He's pulling in a, a quote from earlier on in the book. There was a little little debate about poaching on someone's province, but Jack kind of whip it out and uh, and deploy it to put Graham back in his place. So well done, Jack. Right, right. I mean, this is this, this is absolute reversal of Graham's dressing down Jack for yeah. stepping in on his, you know, his Turkish authorities. Like, you're going to tell me how to fight the ship now? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. This, this is all adding, even so, the, the Togud and the Kitabi there, adding to the odds against Jack. This would not be a Patrick O'Brien 
battle imminent story <laughs> without a bit of foreboding. But I think it does say more about Graham than about Jack. He's actually, I think, a bit insecure. He's a bit unsure of his ground. He's never been in battle before. Graham says, It seems an uncouth long wait before anything happens. I dare say you have seen many actions at sea. Stephen says, I have seen the beginnings of several, but as soon as it grows dangerous, I retire to a place of safety below. And Graham picks up on this reference to the place of safety and says, you're all very arch and jocose this morning. And then nodding towards the other side where Jack and Pullings were discussing some point of their approach and laughing heartily as they did so, he said, do you know the word fey that we use in the north? I do not, said Stephen. He was perfectly well acquainted with the word, but he did not wish to discuss his friend's dangerous high spirits with Graham. So, Mike, t- tell us about Faye. What's going on there? Well, you know, it was really interesting to me because, I, you know, I'm certainly well acquainted with Faye. I mean, what with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and all these wonderful books now out in the last 10 years about the Faye. I'm well acquainted with this kind of otherworldly, meaning otherworldly, meaning about fairies, magical creatures, the Faye. I wasn't associated with the particularly Scottish meaning of a person fated to die or at the point of death, or the fact that these two meanings are actually connected. Because if you go back to the Old English, the Old English that Faye comes from literally means fated to die soon which refers to that odd, good mood a person is in right before they die. So is this O'Brien bigging up the chances of defeat, or is this just a, a, a little character tick for Graham? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of, that's what I think. I think this is Graham, true to his rigid character, mistaking humor for something out of place, misreading the situation, misjudging Jack's capabilities, and not realizing that, you know, this has got, I mean, pullings and... Jack and Moet, this is what they live for. And they're not, you know, they're not being light. They are, you know, they're getting their game face on here. They're going into action. This is really as good as it gets for them. Yeah. And and we get the great moment now when Jack calls the men together. He says, I am not going to make a speech. We know one another too well to go on about duty. Very well. Now, when we were in Medina, I had to tell you not to fire into the enemy first. And since he would not begin, we were obliged to come away without doing anything. Some of you were not quite pleased. This time it will be different. And he goes on. In all of his best speeches, Jack simply points directly to what's coming and then turns that into a simple order. He says, those two Turkish men of war over there have rebelled against their sultan. The wrongs of the sultan of Turkey left the surprises quite unmoved. So the captain continued, what is more, they have taken our transport. So it stands to reason we must knock some sense into their heads and get our prisoners and ships and cannon back. As I dare say, you know, they have a good many men in them. So we are not likely to board very soon, but rather hammer them from a distance. You must fire into their hulls, right into their hulls, mind, fire low and true, deliberate fire with post paid on every ball. Mr. Pullings, we may clear for action and beat to quarters. I'm like, this is great. This is getting the crew's blood up, and I think it's getting the reader's blood up as well. Oh, my gosh. I just, you know, I was listening to this on Patrick Tall the other day, and, you know, this clear for action, beat to quarters, the goosebumps just jumped up and down my arms, my blood's running fast, you know. (laughs) Then I just paused for a second, and I thought, wait a minute, you remember that long, unfruitful, unrequited French squadron chase? Perhaps no... 
impedimus interruptus this time. I hope, I hope we will continue this attack, this assault, and and not get not have to pull out. No, indeed. Well, you know what they say: third time is the charm. Right. So, we get this list from O'Brien of all the things that the crew had already prepared. How far ahead of the game they were. We hear Diana's dress case, horribly ringed and stained by Graham's cocoa. That's a pretty good commentary on what Graham has done so far in the book. He's stained precious things. Um, they were prepared, expectant, and quiet running down on the enemy. It says, in this silence, Graham turned to Stephen and said, what did Mr. Aubrey mean by desiring the men to put post paid on every ball? And Stephen explains, in English law, it is a capital offence to stop His Majesty's mails. By extension, the stopping of any object marked post paid is also mortal. And indeed, the man who stops a cannonball is unlikely to survive. So it was a joke, asks Graham. Just so. A joke at a time like this? Good God forgive us. Such a man would be facetious at his father's burial. So this this, this conversation, though, is interrupted by a great screaming blast of Turkish trumpets, harsh and shrill. God, how it lifts your heart, says Jack. And I think, Mike, now we're getting the, we're getting the true colour. The, the, the jokes are just everybody, like you say, getting their game face on. Now battle's about to be joined. Mustafa raises the Turkish ensign, maybe thinking that Jack doesn't know about rebellion. Jack sails to the other side of the Torgood, has Graham tell him to surrender. And Graham says, in effect, he refuses, which I love. <laughs> and he immediately slams in the first broadside and they are off. And Mike, we're going to get into the details of the action in a second. But for the history nerds out there, we have another reference to 1808. On July 5th and 6th, 1808, the British frigate HMS Seahorse, commanded by Captain John Stewart, fought an action against the much larger Turkish frigate Badare Zafar of 52 guns and an accompanying Turkish corvette, the Alice Fezan. And I won't tell you the end of the action with the Turks. Suffice it to say that there was one particular point relevant to the plot of the Ionian mission, which is that the Turkish frigate was armed with brass 24-pounder long guns and two immense 42-pounders, just as we've heard was the case with the Torgood. Right, right. Just like that. So as you say, it they are pounding each other now. They're pounding each other so much that finally the Turgood moves off to join the Katabi and the surprise follows. And the sharpshooters, Jack's telling them, you know, make sure you get those guys who are firing those 36 pounders uh, because he's already had one of those balls just miss his head when he had bent over to stop a, a carronade, which had broke its breaching. As they get closer the Katabi opens up on the surprise and actually does much more damage than the Turgut had. And the trumpets blast out again. And Jack realizes that the Turgut is now attempting to board. And she comes on, her bowsprit and jibboom are crowded with people. They're all hanging right there, you know, waiting to jump onto the surprise. And Jack, knowing the surprise so well, tacks at the very last minute and their storm of grape just completely clears away the Torga's waiting men. Uh, O'Brien writes, a most shocking butchery. And so Jack turns to Graham and says, warm work, professor. You know, here it is. Boom. All these people have just been blown completely away. And Graham says, is it indeed? This is my first naval battle of any consequence. Aubrey says, quite warm, I assure you. But the Turks cannot keep it up. 
that is the disadvantage of your brass guns. If you keep on firing at this rate, they melt. They are pretty to be sure, but they cannot keep it up. Mm. <laughs> well, we've got a couple of interesting things going on there. First of all, Graham, he we know he prizes philosophic detachment, but he's he's got eyes in his veins. This is my first battle of any consequence. He's really not seeing or at least not addressing the, the human side of battle yet. And maybe he's just shocked by it all. But I also love the fact that we've got a little bit of a, a, a phallic metaphor going on here. We, we've feared the Turks because of their big guns. And, uh, and Jack's dissing the, the, the Turkish gunner. He says, they're pretty, but they can't keep it up. Right. So, <laughs> toxic masculinity right there. That's right. Oh, my gosh. Well, the Turgid makes a run for it. The surprise pursues. And the Tkatabi comes up between the two ships, hoping to run past them, haul or win, and then capture the surprise between her and, and, and the Turgid. And Jack, I love Jack. Jack looks at it and says, that will not do, my friend, said Jack, watching her approach. It's very gallant, but it really will not do. And so Jack positions the surprise. So just when the Katabi comes up and the, and the Torgood cannot support her, Jack moves in close and just batters the Katabi. And after six broadsides, there's this an explosion on board. She catches fire. And, you know, the battle continues. Yeah. And poor tactical choices there, I think, by the Torgood. They let themselves get separated so they weren't mutually supporting. And Jack was able to p- pick them off. And exactly as he predicted to Graham... We don't need to fear of the Republic yet. So the Torgood slowed right down. Um, it's got not much speed on it, but it appears to be running away, maybe trying to make contact with Ali Pasha. The Torgood leaves a long trail of dead bodies in her wake as the crew throws them overboard. And Jack gets to check in on how it's going aboard the Surprise. He discovers the Surprise has six men badly wounded and three dead, which to be honest, is a pretty modest butcher's bill so far. And he decides on close action as long as he can avoid being boarded because that's when the the Torgood's weight of men will really start to pay. So they engage on the Torgood's undamaged side. Jack sees, once again, the blur of a heavy cannon shot passing by his head and asks driver, the Marine Lieutenant, to have the Marines target the gunners. And Graham's stepping in a little bit here. To his credit, he asks for a musket to go and help. He says he feels useless and exposed. Or maybe he just doesn't want to stand next to Jack, who's catching all of his, uh, all his cannon fire. So the target, unfortunately, the way they position now, they're on their undamaged side and they fire a pretty violent salvo. Um, They clap their helm over hard and they're attempting to board again. Once again, her men are just crowding on and the surprise can't tack this time, but she drops her forecourse and shoots ahead. She catches the wind, shoots ahead and her stern chasers this time firing grape and the red slaughter is even greater and the gun crew starts to cheer, but just stops. It just stops in the wake of all this carnage. Um, She crosses the surprise, crosses the Torgood stern, rakes her, uh, and then moves to her starboard side, the one with all the damaged guns. But even though they've got few guns left on that side, they actually have, of the 13 shots that the Torgood gets off, three really hit home. One wedges the surprise's rudder. Another makes a shocking great hole in her copper, as you know, right under the waterline as she had come up. And a third one takes Williamson's arm off at the elbow. 
Jack's just about to give him an order, and boom, his you know the bottom part of his arm is gone. And O'Brien writes, Jack saw his amazed face go paper white, not pain, but amazement and concern and disbelief. And Jack whipped a handkerchief around the stump, twisted it tight, staunched the jetting blood, and passed him to a quartermaster to carry below. Oh, boy. So a grim moment there, but... Let's see how the battle's moving along. Surprise has made her repairs. The Torgood's much closer to land, which is to the Torgood's favour probably in this battle. And as they catch up, Jack decides to board her. But the Kitabi is in the way. She had thought the Surprise was chasing her, had raced to get ahead and come between the two ships. And Jack's crew smiled at him as he makes the rounds going around the ship. Again, he felt the rising of that enormous excitement of immediate battle, greater than any other he had ever known in the world. He goes below for a moment. He checks on the wounded. He discovers that Williamson is going to be okay. And he tells Stephen that they're about to board. And it's a great moment here, Mike, that they shake hands together before Jack moves off. Right. Right. And I, I love this. You know, it's like these two friends, these two guys that just, you know, love each other. They've been through so much together. You know, Jack's basically saying, I think, goodbye to him just in case, in a way. And they just look at one another and shake hands. There's no words. And, you know, Jack goes back on deck. He sends a ball over the Kitabi to get her move. She had jigged and run right into the Torgood. So the two Turkish ships are together. The Kitabi's foremast falls over the waist of the Torgood. And this is Jack's moment. He lays the surprise athwart her stern. He fires and boards over the stern into the smoke. Jack and Pullings are leading the charge. Awkward Davis comes out of nowhere. And earlier on, we'd had cause for Jack to remind one of the junior officers of just what a useful character this Awkward Davis guy is. And we say, Davis came up out of nowhere, jostling against Bondon on the left, looking perfectly mad with a line of white spittle between his lips and a butcher's cleaver in his hand. Right. Well, that's, that's enough to put the fear of God into anybody. They move <laughs> right through the 40 Turks into a clearing where a Turkish officer held out his sword, crying, Rondre, Rondre, which means I, I surrender in French. The Torgud fired her remaining afterguns into the Kitabi. Jack leads the men as they jump off from the Kitabi into the Torgud's quarter deck. He says the decks were full of men, most of them facing aft into the smoke. Jack had never felt stronger or more live or more holy in form. And Mike, this is great because this is a guy who was doubting his uh, his masculinity and his physical fitness and his mental powers as well. But he's 100% back to being Jack. It says they tried to push aft as the Marines tried to storm the stern windows and the taffrail. It was the usual furious melee with a huge amount of shouting and striving, very little room to manoeuvre because of both friends and enemies, little in the way of skill in swordsmanship, short-armed blows, kicking, the physical weight of both sides and the moral weight of both sides. They made some progress. Jack, we find out, had been wounded three times. And abruptly, there was room in front of him, breathing space as some of the Turks eased back, still fighting. On Jack's right, Pullings lunged into his space, thrusting at his opponent, caught his foot on a ringboat and fell. And for a fragment of time, his ingenuous face was turned to Jack. And then the Turk's sword flashed down, and the fight closed in again. No, 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 roared Jack, driving forward with enormous strength. Mike. I remember every time I read this, this is a moment of horror. Oh, God, it's bringing tears to my eyes right now. I thought the same thing. I was like, no. Oh, my gosh. 
So Jack's standing over pulling. He says he had his heavy saber in both hands and taking no guard, he hacked and slashed, standing astride over Pulling's body. Now men scattered before his extreme fury. They fell back. The moral advantage was established, shouting to Davis to stand by, to stand guard, to carry the body under the ladder. He charged aft, followed by all the rest. Oh, gosh. I was just, I thought, oh, my God, we've just been talking about pullings, and he's too old to get a command, and Jack can't do any more for him. And I was like, no, O'Brien, you, I won't say that. (laughs) I was not very, very generous. I could believe pullings was going to go down in action here. So I guess this is, this is the delight of of having the memory of an old man and not remembering from 10 years ago, what's going to happen here, right? Well, first of all, we find one commander whose luck has definitely turned. We find Mustafa, one of his legs broken, sitting at a table surrounded by pistols. Two of the officers are holding Mustafa's hands down as his aide, Ulusan, surrenders. They make Mustafa give up his sword, and Ulusan, the aide, wraps the flag around the sword and hands it to Jack. Mustafa flings himself upon the deck and beats his head against it. And I, I love this line from Moat because it ties up one of the great actions that I think uh, O'Brien is trying to refer to. Give you joy, sir, said Moat at his side. You have come it the Nelson's Bridge at last. Jack turned a pale, hard face on him. And Mike, this is where we bring it back to the yes. everyday world of Jack and Pullings. Have you seen Pullings, he asked. Why, yes, sir, said Moat, looking surprised. They've fairly ruined his waistcoat and knocked his wits astray, but that don't depress his spirits, I find. Yay for points. He's alive, right? And the man who has highlighted a couple of the key moments for Jack all the way through his career steps in, and we get this great moment of dialogue from Bondon. You'd better get back to the barky, sir, said Bondon, in a low voice, tucking the ensign and the other officer's swords under his arm. This here is going to kingdom come. And my last line of the novel, and I'm just quickly going to say, this is a really close parallel with Lord Nelson's own description of the aftermath of his famous Nelson's Bridge taking one one ship over the deck of another ship. Um, Nelson wrote, On the quarter deck of the Spanish first rate, extravagant as the story may seem, did I receive the swords of vanquished Spaniards, which as I received I gave to William Farney, one of my bargemen, who put them with the greatest sang-froid under his arm. So, yeah. uh, hurrah for Jack, hurrah for Bondon, hurrah for Nelson's Bridge, and so endeth the Ionian mission. Right, and and hurrah for Pullings. Oh my gosh, he's alive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a messed up Westcott, but we, we'll we'll get over that. What an amazing chapter, right? It's like a whole yeah. book. Let's just talk about the book for a second. What do we think? Well, it, it's Ionian mission. It seems, Ian, to me, like it's been years since, you know, Diana and Stephen were getting themselves happily ensconced in Half Moon Street in their little house, you know, and Stephen's taking up his separate quarters and Jack is worried about the roses at Ashgrove Cottage. I can't believe that seemed like years ago since we were there. Yeah, we're years and miles and many kind of twists and turns of the characters away from there. And Mike, like I often say, we get to the end of this book and I had had it in my mind as one of the sort of placeholder books, getting me towards one of my super favorites, which is Treason's Harbor. But actually it's, it's been a really great book. All the character stuff for Jack has really come out for me. All of the, the, the back and forth between Graham and Stephen really, really sets up Graham's character, I think. So it's going to be interesting as we get into Treason's Harbor, which I will confess is one of my all time favorites. 
what are we going to hear about Professor Graham? Right. Well, and I was wondering at the end of this, I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm so happy and I'm ecstatic and it's wonderful and I love the actions. And I thought, what happened to Katali? Wait a minute. We set up yeah. the whole Ionian mission and I don't even know what happened in the Ionian mission. I know there's this battle, but but what happens? And we've got this, this gap at the top of the Navy's command structure. What's going on with Admiral Hart? We heard earlier on about his unholy alliance with Andrew Ray. Right. And you know, this Byzantine, Byzantine politics, what of this? What's going to go on? And and the French intelligence, I mean, they're so close to Stephen, and then we kind of left them behind for forever. Are we going to hear from them again? I, I think there's only one way to be sure. Mike, what do you say to a little more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. doesn't suck any worse than it usually does. Oh, what a great day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's call that a win.